Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence brought to you by the TCT content team. I'm Laura Griffiths, TCT Head of Content, and I'm joined by our Senior Content Producer, Sam Davis. Hello, Laura. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. It's been a, a good while since we've done an editorial roundtable. Well, at least it's been a good while since we've done one without the noise of a trade show being completely broken down behind us. So this should be a Three bit better. Three months, I guess, because we did one at Rapid, and then quite quickly one at 360. Mm. Yeah, true. We were intending to do one last month, and um, time ran away. Yeah. And here we are. But it's a good job you filled that gap with very good Innovators and Innovators episodes. Um, if you've not already seen them and if you're not a subscriber, which you should be, um, you can go back and look through our last few episodes. We've got some really good conversations, uh, 3D printing in space with um, NASA and Trump and all these other great things you can go look back over and a few really exciting ones coming up as well. So don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but on today's episode, unfortunately, you're stuck with me and Sam for another editorial roundtable where we discuss some of the biggest news stories from the last month. Um, so today we're going to be looking at Nanodimensions surprise investment in Stratasys, Formlabs new Fuse One Plus system, Markforge acquiring digital metal and the latest report from Context which shows a complete reversal of trends of those seen in the 3D printing industry throughout 2020. So lots of things to get through on this one. So let's kick things off with this one. So the biggest one, perhaps. Uh, Nanodimension, which first came to market with its focus on 3D printed electronic systems, has acquired a 12% stake in additive manufacturing giant Stratasys. Sam, you reported on this one last week, and I know you've since spoken to Nanodimension. I had no comment from Stratasys. Uh, Please tell us about this story. Yeah, so we'll go in chronological order, I think. Um, So on July 18th, um, Nanodimension, as you said, announced it acquired 12.12% of the outstanding ordinary shares of Stratasys. Um, Stratasys, as you said, one of the you know leaders in the field, one of the oldest names in uh, the 3D printing industry, um, particularly one of the leading names on the polymer side. Um, and while Nanodimension's focus has largely been in printed electronics and microprinting, also start expanding into metal and ceramics with the acquisition of Admatech and Formatech earlier this summer um, and now has a, a you know a sort of play in, in the polymer space um, so the reason that Nanodimension has acquired those shares it says is to give its own shareholders more value um, so by having a stake in Stratasys the company believes its shareholders will benefit from a leading player in a more stable and mature market, which then complements the value um, that its shareholders get directly from nanodimension operating in what they call blue ocean air market. Mm. So electronics and metal AM, which have accelerated growth and expansion curves. Um, when that news broke um, in mid-July, there were speculative suggestions in some quarters that this was maybe the start of a hostile takeover. Nanodimension CEO Joab Stern um, spoke to TCT in the days after that um, announcement by Nanodimension said his company was not necessarily, that's a quote, interested in acquiring control of Stratasys and that they have, um, that they hope rather that Stratasys will deliver its promises in the near future. He also reiterated that Nanodimension is open to increasing or decreasing their investment subject to market conditions and said the investment in Stratasys is the extent to which they wish to go into polymer 3D printing at this point. 
when we reached out to Stratasys, um, they initially declined to comment. And then I think it was exactly seven days after the Nano Dimension announcement, Stratasys announced a shareholders' rights plan for a 364-day term, mm-hmm. which ends on July 24th next year. So a shareholder rights plan is also known as a poison pill. It's typically deployed to prevent hostile takeovers and gives existing shareholders the right to purchase more shares at a discount and that then dilutes um, or hopefully they they want to dilute the interest of parties that are planning a takeover. Mm-hmm. Um, importantly though, the rights would only become exercisable if a person or group acquires beneficial ownership of 15% or more of Stratasys' outstanding shares in a transaction that isn't approved by the Stratasys board. If that did happen without approval from the Stratasys board, then each holder of a right would be able to purchase one ordinary share at a purchase price of a cent per share. And the Stratasys board would also be able to exchange one ordinary share for each outstanding right. So basically, the motivation here is to encourage any party interested in a takeover i.e. potentially nanodimension, mm-hmm. to negotiate directly with the Stratasys board and that would give the Stratasys board a bit more control over whether nanodimension either mounts a hostile takeover bid or, as, as they've alluded to, increases their share um, in the future. But that only lasts for a year, mm-hmm. so I don't know what happens after that. All right. See, I feel like in the last few years we've had to try and become uh, not experts, but a little bit more <laughs> um, up on the various goings on in the like finance deals within the industry and takeovers, acquisitions, that sort of thing. And this one is, this one's really interesting because it's Stratasys. It is like one of the kind of say one of two, three biggest players in the industry. It's one of the pioneers of the industry as well, and mm-hmm. um, which obviously makes this. Um, Super interesting, but also the fact that it's Nano Dimension, who I feel uh, they've been around for what five, seven years. I think seven it's years six, seven. now, right? Okay, wow. So they've been around for some time, but not not too long in the grand scheme of the industry. But it feels like they've really ramped up in just the last few years with you know some of the companies you mentioned at the start, some that they've acquired in that short time. They really seem to be like okay, they want to be one of the the bigger players in the industry because electronics was quite a it's quite a niche market mm-hmm. and moving into like the micro printing as well which they did last year I mean that's still quite small no pun intended um as well <laughs> um but with this with the with the polymer side to it really looks like they want to just and ceramics as well metals which they've just had to it sounds like they're really trying to round out their portfolio with just about everything they could they could take off the industry but um like you say it'll be interesting to see what happens after that year and how they do plan to move forward with this you know you said before the ceo has said it could either increase or decrease its investment you know we we don't know what might happen there but um i'm sure the industry will be reacting to this news from stratasys i'm wondering is this defensive with it being a year i don't know but i imagine if you and this is not said at nano dimension r but if you are going to try and carry out a hostile takeover i imagine you want that process to be quick. Mm. You don't want to be waiting a year to be able to do it. Yeah. So that's one thing. I don't know whether it's just a precautionary measure um, from Stratasys or if there's intel and if they have intel suggesting that that's what Nanodimension want to do. They've openly said, depending on market conditions, they might want to increase or decrease. Um, 
And then the 15% thing, I think, I think I read last week that nobody has, no one group or person has 15% shares in Stratasys. So none of them mention if they were to go up to 15% are not a majority shareholder by any means, but they have got more shares than any other single group. So that might be why that's relevant. Um, So yeah, and then I don't know whether Stratasys obviously would rather negotiate in any circumstance, I guess, but I don't know whether that means that, you know, by encouraging nanodimension through this right plan to negotiate with the board, I don't know whether that's a stretch is open to selling if the if the price is right, um, or it could just be a, it's a, a way of complicating things legally that mm. they can do um, to kind of shoo away nanodimension. Um so I don't I don't really know. They've obviously declined to comment mm-hmm. um, beyond what is in the announcement. And to be fair, on the other side, um, Yoav from Nanodimension didn't say an awful lot beyond um, the 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 stuff that they had in the press release. He did he did say a little bit more, and there's a there's a story on the website um, explaining um, the motivation and how it aligns with their vision, and you know. The, the whole the whole point of, of their investment was that as as we've covered already that they hope that Stratus delivers on its promises and he also referenced the new management that's in place um and then and then again referred back to the, the press release saying they may increase or decrease. So I don't I don't know how it plays out over the next twelve months, um, whether this is enough to deter nanodimension completely mm-hmm. whether it's a case of kind of cross wires and stratasys have assumed that that's what nanodimension are doing and, and maybe as they've told us that that's not necessarily what they're looking at doing um i don't know but we'll, we'll obviously keep an eye on it um and yeah there's there's a whole year to run at least um maybe it gets sorted out sooner than that um, hopefully not in the next seven days because we're being super organised and kind of recording <laughs> this six days in advance of publishing it so hopefully nothing more develops in that time well, It's like you questioned in your article which explained this a little bit more you know, is now Dimension in a position really to, to well so how is it in a position mm. to make such a move and even though it is quite a young company you know, listed on the stock exchange like very like early on and They've got offices all over the place, by the looks of it, like, you know, quite a lot of of cash as well. But it is just very interesting. I don't think you and I thought we'd be sat here at any point on this podcast talking about Stratasys potentially being taken over, particularly by a relatively new company in the industry. Yeah, I think there's a perception, I guess, that Nanodimension is a small player and Stratasys is a big, Mm. huge company. Um, But as... um, So I I put that question to Nanodimension and Yoav... Um, quite soon after the announcement and after a few days they, they got back to us and they they pointed to their um, revenue rate which they project is going to be 40 million US dollars um, this year which is um, up by a factor of 10 from two years ago and by a factor of four from last year um, and then they've got more than 500 employees 170 of them are engineers they have hundreds of customers um and they also say that they've got approximately 1.2 billion in cash on its balance sheet with no debt. So mm-hmm. I think there's scope there um, to do it. And I don't know whether that 
you know, materialises as a kind of majority stake or whether it's, whether they think they can, you know, how high in terms of control and how deep in terms of control they could go on Stratasys, I don't know what that looks like, but I guess we're now in a position where Stratasys should be able to negotiate that and it isn't just going to be, as was the case with these 12% of shares at NanoDimension, just go and buy them mm-hmm. without Stratasys to say so, so... And it's not like it would be, you know, we talk about this being a relatively new player in the industry and Stratus being one of the, the, the old guys, but it's not like it's the first time we've seen no. this happen. You know, you look at like desktop metal and X1, you're a pioneer in biojet technology and now that's that with just about every other company industry. Mm, yeah. <laughs> All under the desktop metal family. And um, yes, it's not it's it's not like it's a completely surprising thing, but um yeah, I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see. And it'd be interesting when Stratasys are if they're ever prepared to to comment on this to get their side on it so mm. yeah i guess it's similar to that one thing it's a case of capital and having the balls to go and do yeah, it i yeah. guess um and puffing their chest out a bit because mm-hmm. one thing it does do is it probably makes people look at nanodimension in a different way in terms of their status within the industry mm-hmm. all of a sudden you know they've gone from being um you know, a, a kind of well-regarded company that's doing its thing in electronics and is making acquisitions in other areas to all of a sudden having a significant stake in one of the leading companies with the prospect, potentially, that it is going to try and gain more. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think that does change the perception of that company quite a bit. So the next story comes from Formlabs, which has launched a new SLS machine called the Fuse One Plus. Um, so it follows a similar name and trajectory as um, other uh, machines they've had. So they had their Form One, that was a Form One Plus. So basically just means that it's the same sort of system, but it's got new enhanced features on top of that. And um, so Formlabs says that the Fuse One Plus has been, quote, built of the success of the Fuse One, which is, was rolled out into the market last year. Um, this one is now equipped with a 30 watt laser compared to the 10 watt laser that comes with the Fuse One. It comes combined with an upgraded uh, galvanometer system and is said to enable quicker print speeds, superior throughput and access to new high performance materials. Um, So if you remember, form labs have been, um, they were talking about doing a selective laser sintering system for quite some time. Um, They eventually teased it in like 2017 and then they launched it onto the market properly last year, so commercially launched last year. Um, and from what they've said, it seems to have done pretty well. So um, Max Lebowski, who's the CEO and founder of Formlabs, has said since launching the Fuse One in January 2021, Formlabs has single-handedly, this is a quote, uh, expanded the SLS market, accounting for more than 50% of SLS printer sales in that time, which um, is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that does actually link into a story we're going to talk about later on in the episode, but um, Context Market Intelligence Company that does a lot of reports on the 3D printing industry um, did actually say last year that within the category that that machine falls into, which is professional printers, that um, it was because of machines like the SLS, the, the Fuse One system from Formlabs, that that uh, printer category was able to do so well last year because it was uh, new machines, people were interested mm-hmm. in having a more accessible version of SLS technology, which is what the Fuse One um, has really been about um 
So there's a few other things about the system. So um, this can now achieve scan speeds up to 12.5 meters per second. In this press release launch the machine, Max Lebowski has really doubled down on kind of the, the success of the, of the Fuse one and, and how well it's sold. You know, he's talked about the success of previous machines and how this machine is really gonna follow the, the path of that. You know, he talks about how Formlabs has sold over 100,000 professional SLA systems since it started, which is a, a, a huge number. In fact, we were only joking yesterday in the office, we were talking about um, the use of 3D printing in films and how you always end up seeing like an, a, <laughs> a Formlabs machine in some kind of in some kind of lab that's such a recognisable uh, system. And that's more than any other uh, 3D printer manufacturer for that style system. Um, and they're really hoping that the Fuse One Plus uh, sets up um, to similarly dominate the SLS market because... So the Fuse One came to the market as this low-cost SLS system. The idea of having SLS technology um, on a bench start to be able to put that in a little workshop um, and just be able to do that all in all under one roof in a very um, compact sort of way. Um, it has changed a little bit since then. I remember seeing one of the very first prototypes of the machine going on a visit to Formlabs back in, probably was around 2017 now, um, and seeing an early iteration. And um, since then, the machine has kind of, it's got a little bit bigger. It's still a desktop system. You can still put it on a, I'll say a very sturdy desk. <laughs> you can still put it on that. Um, and of course, there's been an ecosystem built out with that since uh, processing the, the prints that come out after it, all those things that Formlabs has done with previous technologies. Um, and they've also launched materials specific to the system, that sort of thing. But I think what's interesting here is the Fuse One, when it came to the market or when it was teased onto the market, was announced as this $10,000 um, SLS printer, which um, was made it even more uh, price-friendly compared to some of the other desktop SLS systems that were on the market mm -hmm. at the time. So it really kind of set itself up as this, you know, we're going to make this type of technology accessible like they did with SLA on the, on those form systems. Um, of course, when the machine actually came out uh, last year, that was not the case. Um, it was available to order for, I think it was, was it $18,000? I think it started out at $18,000, going up to around 30000 I think, for, for the whole like full end-to-end mm. -end system. So, you know, nearly double the price of, of what it was supposed to be at the time. And with this one now, um, it's available to order at $27,499 US dollars. So that is available to order now, expected to ship um, late August. So it's coming in at almost like three times what that accessible price point was to start with. Um, I guess that just happens like with, with, with time. And to refer to Formos, they've been very like honest about that and how, you know, when they first decided to launch this machine, you know, all those years ago, they thought, oh yeah, we'll, we'll have this out in a year or something. And of course it takes a long time. You know, when they launched their first system, you know, it was a Kickstarter and then they did various iterations, which we've seen all the way to the Form 3 now. Um, but, you know, it wasn't like an overnight thing. They they really worked at it to make sure that it, that it worked and that, you know, it was reliable and that that same kind of, um, reputation they've got in the SLA market that they would have um, in SLS and um, at the time I remember speaking to one of the engineers who talked about in order to hit the reliability and quality goals they end up having to re-engineer some of the things in the machine and some of those things just end up adding costs in the end um, and at the time they said quote we still view cost as a really important metric around accessibility of products and look to reduce price point over time but this is where it needs to be today for us to support it and that was about not just um, you know having a machine that works but also having um, that form involvement in terms of support services once um, someone has actually purchased the machine so 
I, I guess that's why you, you know you can look at this price point now and see it's a lot more. But I think for for what you're getting and for the success that this machine has had, um, you know it 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 does seem to make sense, and it's still an awful lot more accessible than you know the the machines on the market, which are still around like a hundred thousand dollars. So, um, it's still way 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 more affordable than that. And judging by some of the uh, the stats that they've shared already by how many people have installed this machine um you know it's obviously it's obviously worked um so yeah they've also launched as well um a new material alongside this so when the machine first launched they launched um, a nylon material they've now launched nylon 11 carbon fiber filled uh, nylon powder which has been designed to enable end use applications which are strong yet lightweight it's said to offer high stiffness and dimensional stability high degree of vibration impact resistance and with a high strength to weight ratio and thermal stability so again really going after those end use applications which Fallmods has become known for not just in, on the SLA system but now in SLS as well Sam what did you because you reported on this story a couple of weeks ago now what do you make of this I think obviously you know the price point is a bit of a departure from what I guess was initially intended but I was just thinking as you were talking then they kind of soft launched the machine in 2017 with that $10,000 price point mm. And I was just thinking that at that like at that time, desktop printing, whether it be FDM or SLA, was kind of going one way, and that was kind of professionalizing and becoming mm-hmm. a bit more uh, durable and rigid and targeting more end use applications as opposed to just prototypes. And I wonder whether Fallers are still trying to achieve the price point of you know what we've always assumed desktop printing to be. But if you look at FDM, which is obviously inherently cheaper and will always be inherently cheaper than SLS, and even some of the SLA systems that the likes of Formlabs are bringing out, as they get bigger in size or bigger in capability, the price point goes up. Mm. And so I wonder whether it, it's obviously a mile away from what, what they were initially targeting, but maybe that won't matter so much given the capability of the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously sold very well in the last 18 months since they got the initial Fuse 1 onto the market, you would imagine this machine's been launched in response to demand from those customers. So I wonder whether, on the face of it, we can all look at the price point and suggest, well, that's a million miles away from the 10K that they were achieving yeah. or t- trying to achieve. But I think, you know, when, when you think of the Ultimaker S5, which is a bigger machine, that costs more than... The S3 and it costs more oh, than yeah. the, the two and the one, um, and it will just be the same in in SLS as it is the same with the, the Form Three B compared to the Form Two. Um, I guess it will depend on, you know, we see a, we see a price, but we don't necessarily see a value when when the machine launches, and I guess we won't be able to determine the value until this machine is being shipped, which I think is the next quarter. Is it Q three? I think so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and then from there, obviously this first system was a success. They've brought the second out. I don't know off the top of my head how many SLA systems they have, but I'm quite interested to see what they do next because I know when they put out the promo on LinkedIn and on their socials, <laughs> we were like, is it metal? Month, it was there were there were comments underneath saying, is it metal? Is it um, like multi laser? Is it large format? And I just wonder how far they'll go. Obviously, they, there'll be a point at which they'll think that price isn't accessible and it goes against what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would be interested to see, you know, where they where they go with it. 
I think you're right. And just touching on something you said then, I think it maybe is about just changing the understanding of what people expect from like a desktop system and you know you want it to be accessible in terms of affordability but um, it is also about being able to have this, these capabilities in a very compact system and we've seen you know service bureaus launch SLS um, services based just on this mm-hmm. machine rather than buying these you now huge like EOS machines or something like that you know that they've, they've launched services and yeah they're not going to be able to churn off like thousands of parts a day but for what they need it for you know they're obviously seeing the, the returns for that and it's it's allowing them to access this like higher industrial market but still do it at a point where they're not having to shell out you know a hundred thousand pounds for or dollars for um a new machine so i think that is quite interesting sound like you say you know just kind of not trying to hit that two thousand two thousand dollar price mark just to to make it fit into that desktop category which is going to get more confused when we start talking about our full stories <laughs> yeah. about some of the categories of printers and their prices later on. Um, but yeah, I think it's um, I think it will be interesting to see where else they take this because um, you know Farmlabs obviously have just talked then about some of the biggest companies in the industry, but Farmlabs are really are one of one of those uh, names and maybe don't always get mentioned. I don't think when we talk about like kind of heavyweights, and it's probably because they still seem relatively young, even though they've been around for 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 a long time, but in terms of their footprint and the amount of machines they've got installed um they really are you know one of the leaders in the industry so um yeah i'd be quite interested to see what they do with this next and you know this is obviously speeding up that technology but what are they going to do to, to make it bigger to get to those volumes that maybe a service bureau actually wants or maybe launch into other materials and um, mm. other types of technologies it's a, it's kind of going off on a tangent of what we're actually talking about but in terms of how they're they're perceived as maybe not as big a player as they are. I wonder if that's just because they've got such a kind of specific focus. They do SLA and they do SLS mm. in these small format machines and they they don't get involved in acquiring yeah. companies like other other players in the industry do and they're very um not I don't know, niche is the right word, but kind of targeted and they, they focus on what they're good at and they've not at this stage looked to kind of branch out um, all of their innovations they do kind of organically and all mm-hmm. of their product development they do organically maybe there'll come a point where they do start to kind of widen their portfolio but just doing what they do they've they've you know they've sold the most SLA machines they reckon they've sold 50% of the SLS systems last year um, and I believe they're worth over a billion dollars so yeah, one of the few unicorn companies. Doing the what they do obviously work. <laughs> so. Today's episode is sponsored by Nexa 3D. Here, Michael Curry, Vice President and General Manager for Nexa 3D's Desktop Business Unit, discusses ultra-fast printing on the desktop with the zip, the benefits of open versus closed material systems, and creating sustainable 3D printers and consumables. So people, once they get a technology that is four to to, to eight times faster, you see this really big behavior shift where people don't go back. You had people that were would go to Blockbuster or other rental uh, locations and get videos. You know, they might wait wait a week to get uh, a video in stock. Then along came Netflix and kind of disrupted that with on-demand CDs. And then, of course, Netflix then got disrupted by, say, iTunes from Apple, 
Uh, then Netflix disrupted again with the idea of, of true streaming. So you don't see people who are streaming now going back and asking for uh, a cheaper overnight download from iTunes. Like that's, that's not the market anymore. And so we're seeing the same thing for 3D printers. Once you experience a much faster speed, it makes it very difficult for you to want to go back to a slower speed. Uh, so as an example, we just uh, had a client who just received the zip and he did a side-by-side -side print on another very common SLA desktop printer in the market. Uh, the print that he traditionally would do took him five hours. The one he did on the zip took him 45 minutes. So that's a seven times improvement. And what that means for him is that you know he can now print by the hour each day, uh, whereas before he might do one print in the morning and then kick off an overnight print. So his productivity is gonna be dramatically in increased. Or if you're trying to do a bit of a batch production of, of parts, you'll be able to get that many more batches done in a, in a given period of time. So I think that once people see that and experience that, it's going to be very difficult to go back to a, a, a slower process. Can you talk about the materials that Zip uses in regards to open versus closed material systems? So the Zip in itself is an open uh, platform for material development. We are really taking a close look at the various material providers in the marketplace, and we're curating and finding what we think are like really good materials. And then we will validate those, and in some cases also uh, bring them into our platform and, and resell them. And we, you kind of get our stamp of approval that, hey, we think this is a really good resin. It's superior to its peers in terms of performance or some other aspect, maybe price, uh, value. And we'll make those next branded. But then our systems are also open. So if you want to go ahead and, and find a resin that you prefer or a color that you need, we also have an open system where you can unlock all the same controls that our internal process team uses to develop resins. I understand that another way the the ZIP has been built is to really consider sustainability. How does the ZIP ecosystem address this? A lot of people complain in the desktop space around the amount of waste that's generated. I think mm. people in the industrial setting, maybe they, 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 they know that waste is a byproduct, but I think at the desktop, when you're using a printer as an individual, it maybe come, might come as a bit of a surprise. So the one thing that the two things we're doing in terms of our resin management, uh, we are using aluminum uh, bottles that uh, they themselves can be made from recycled material or they can also be recycled themselves after use. We also have the ability to refill them. And then the second one is in our vat system. So we have an interchangeable membrane and, and a solid metal vat. So when your membrane uh, exceeds its life or maybe has a puncture or something like that, you can just simply unsnap the membrane and dispose of that and snap a new membrane in. And that, that's a really big uh, improvement um, compared to some of the other systems where you're basically throwing away the entire vat. And that's a lot of uh, energy that you're throwing away in that process. Uh, so those are the two things around resin management. And then I guess lastly, the zip itself, uh, we chose to make it an all metal machine. Um, many desktop class machines are made out of plastic. So we're kind of making this sturdy, robust, rigid system. And then our goal in the future is to uh, make modular enhancements to that core. So you, you, don't, you don't end up throwing away your printer just because you want to upgrade its internal components. For more information, visit nexa3d.com.
moving on to a story from a company that's just a little bit down the road from Farmhouse. Mm. Um, Mark Forge has made another acquisition, uh, this time in metal binder jet technology uh, by acquiring digital metal. Sam, do you want to tell us about this one? Yeah, so with this acquisition, there is a company that's broadening its um, portfolio. Um, Mark Forge obviously came to market with its um, extrusion systems and composites and, and metals, and now with uh, the acquisition of digital metal, they'll be expanding that to include binder jet. Um, so the deal is expected to be worth more than forty million dollars, um, with Mark Forge paying three thirty three point five million um, in cash, and then also selling four point one million shares of its common stock to Hoganus. Um, the value of which will be determined at closing, but at the time of the announcement. Um, I think those 4.1 million shares are worth just under 8 million. So um, that would then take the total cost of the transaction over $40 million. Um, the significance of this deal is that up until now, Mark Forge, on the hardware side at least, has exclusively supplied extrusion 3D printed technologies. Um, but in BinderJet, they see a highly scalable technology and in digital metal they say high precision and best-in-class part quality and reliability. Mm. Um, so Digital Metal was founded by Hoganus in 2003, I think, not too long after X1 came to market with uh, BinderJet technology and since then has used um, its BinderJet systems to produce hundreds of thousands of parts, or rather its customers have, um, in industries like consumer products and, and automotive. It will now come under the Mark Forge umbrella, which also includes uh, Teton Simulation, which they recently acquired. Um, and Mark Forge believes its software portfolio and its um, distribution network can really uh, enhance what uh, Digital Metal already offers. Um, so we spoke to the VP of Marketing at Mark Forge um, on the day of the announcement, actually, and he told us that Bindajet technology is complementary to their Metal X system, which he described as a Swiss army knife, which caters for low, lower volumes, complex parts. Bindajet will obviously, I guess, deal with less complex parts, but in higher volumes. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that the company has been following um, developments in the Bindajet sector carefully over the last few years. Um, and when you consider that all of the other firms providing providing metal binder jet technologies are either these huge brands or they've already been acquired or in the case of X1 they're both um, I guess digital metal was primed for somebody to take the company over um, particularly if as was the case Hoganus was open to divesting um, that company after nearly 20 years um, and yeah Papish told us that um, and this is a quote that they believe that binder jetting is a core component of additive manufacturing. And what I took from that was that, I guess, to compete to the love that Mark Forge does with the likes of desktop metal, um, they're going to need binder jetting as part of their portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I imagine a lot of other companies probably would have felt similar and I guess that would have left people scrapping for digital metal. Um, so they've kind of got in there first. Um, at what, what to me seems like quite a good deal at $40 million. Yeah. 
because um, I think I know Exxon's a giant, but they went up for like five hundred million. Um, for you know a company in this doing the same or similar technologies, I know Exxon have got a much wider portfolio, and they also do um, stuff away from metal. But um, forty million seems like a good deal to me. And then when they they kind of marry that with their distribution network, which spans seventy countries. Um, that's going to help step up the adoption of digital metals behind jet technology. And then they've got um, this integrated software network, which they're working really hard on, which um, includes tools like Blacksmith, which is a real-time quality assurance software, which is a, you know, a unique uh, technology, I think, on the market. And Smart Slice um, from Teton, which is an automatic slicing software, again um pretty different to what else is out there mm-hmm. um and so i think they they're hoping to marry those and hoping to really enhance what digital metal have already done um with bandajet um and yeah it's quite a big move i think for, for mark forge um and i think that closes or is expected to close in um q3 subject to customary conditions um yeah so exciting stuff going on there yeah, it is, and it follows this trend that we've seen in the last few years for biojet technology. And um, I think you're right. You know, it's it's kind of like they, they had to do something to enter that market because it, it's worth it's one that everybody's talking about right now. And not to touch too much on the last story, but um, an interesting um, stat from um, context, just talking about um, biojet technology and not just metals, but biojet just in general. Um, that it is like one of the most popular markets in 3D print at the moment it's actually the, the fastest growing market within the industry mm. um, but even though it is the fastest growing it's not actually um, it's not the dominant technology in the space it accounts just 3% of all industrial machine shipments and just 8% of those in the metal market so it's still not a massive um, fraction of the overall industry but in terms of how much um, it's growing it's certainly one of the one of the biggest ones and I imagine that's obviously been helped by all the attention that's been put on the, the amount of acquisitions that have been made and I think is where you talked about the volumes before Sam and you know really been able to bandage it is great not necessarily for making these overly complex parts but for making things um, at scale and I think as we're talking more about moving out into manufacturing towards production and the different kinds of industries that are taking it mainly automotive with a lot of Bionajet which you've seen with companies like X1 and um, you know it really is about that that high volume and so it's great to see that Mark Forge will be able to um, expand into this now with all the tools that they've already got and combine these together and I suppose with, with digital metal you know this is just a this is just a part of you know Hoganis is a, is a mm. massive business and um, this is just one small part of that and um, it's I suppose it's an interesting time because they've not long launched a new machine mm. as well was it rapid they launched a new platform and that was a production style platform because if you remember like the machines before this are very much based on it's Banerjee but it's more about micro additive mm. manufacturing not these these yeah, huge parts and um, because I remember one of the first things I saw from them they were making these tiny little I think it was whistles or yeah, something yeah. so every time you come back from the event you have a new whistle and yeah I lost mine because like, <laughs> unfortunately they're so small that it's quite easy for them to fall off key yeah. and you never know they're very 
cute. I remember that. And then they did some really interesting stuff with um, um, some Swiss watch brands and things like that. You know, they've, they've done like really intricate work. And I think that's another interesting angle. It's not just going to be about all these like huge, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, mass produced parts, but also some of the more interesting, intricate things they can make that you can't really do with the extrusion based technologies because you can't get those high levels of intricacy. Um, and that's why I found like one of the quotes that you got from um, from Mark Forge, Sam, you know, which was that Mark Forge is not an FFF company. Uh, they'll use any technology that can help solve problems. And mm. I think a lot of companies now are trying to build themselves out to become, I know that Matt Forge have called themselves a bit of a Swiss army knife with their current technology, but to really become that Swiss army knife of additive manufacturing and be able to go into all these different markets and have that full uh, tool set. Yeah, and you, you always say good things about their technology, which mm. I think is interesting because obviously they've they've talked about how their software and how their distribution channels can enhance it. I wonder how much of their kind of competency in hardware they'll be able to attribute to these machines because um, they they recognised when I was speaking to Mark Forge that Bandijet's still in kind of an early phase um, and, you know, the the production volume that it can, can achieve is kind of potential rather than things that are happening today. Um, so I wonder whether there's any tweaks that they can add. I know it's a completely different kind of set of technologies, but their technology you always say good things about the, the parts on their on their booths at trade shows yeah. are always immaculate. Um, the design of their machines are really really nice. Um, so yeah, and you know they also said that because it, you you look at that Metal X machine and okay, they describe it as a Swiss Army knife, but it. it can't it physically can't do what a bandajet machine might be able to do, which mm. is volume. Um, and I know that you can manufacture end use parts on the Metal X, but it, you know, they said this will push them further into manufacturing operations. And I think that'll open up a whole new kind of addressable market for them, a whole new suite of applications mm. that in the real world you're not going to be able to produce a volume of a metal axe. Yeah, and similar to what we've just been saying about form labs, actually, considering when Mark Forge started out, they were very much desktop machines, um, as I say, carbon fibre, then they moved into metals, but, you know, kind of staying around this kind of, I say accessible, but accessible in terms of size of the machines, even that's changed more recently, and we've seen the types of machines they've brought out, these really, like, kind of huge industrial mm. systems. So, again, this ties in with that as well, as idea that they are going after those different markets now, and it really is a kind of period of... Um, maturing for them so dead interesting and I can't wait to get to um, form next at the end of the year when we're going to see that the results of some of these acquisitions mm. and what that actually looks like and you know if it, if it does change the look of maybe uh, just someone else's machine as well they've just launched I'm, I'm very interested to see that so let's move on to the very last story then which I've touched on several times already uh, <laughs> so the last story is some good news from market intelligence company Context we regularly cover in the magazine they do some great reports on the shipments in the industry um, and they've actually found that the 3d printing industry has shown a complete reversal of trends from those seen throughout 2020 so um, if you cast your mind back to then what we saw at the time was that um, the industrial markets and some of the, uh, the kind of the design level machines too, so that's mach- design machines are those uh, priced at $20,000 onwards, the industrial ones are $100,000 onwards, um, that those uh, machine categories are taking a real dip in um, machine shipments because people obviously, um, you know, we're 
couldn't afford them because the way business was, was moving or you know with supply chain shutting down that sort of thing it was causing a lot of people to rethink what they were doing with the technology and um yeah it just kind of the 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 orders were not filling the books pretty much at the time. Um, but what we did see at the time was the desktop machines, more accessible machines, um, including kind of more um, professional ones, but also the hobbyist ones as well, that they were doing really, really well at the time because not only did we see kind of community efforts from people to use desktop printers to help with efforts during the pandemic to make things like PPE, the kind of the face shield headbands that we saw and various um, you know iterations of masks and that sort of thing. Because we saw a lot of that at the time, people were picking up desktop machines quite cheap and, and doing this sort of thing from home. But also companies that were sending their engineers that couldn't come into the office anymore, sending them to work from home. And um, it was kind of like you and I, Sam, taking our MacBooks home to go and, and, and work from home. Uh, people were having 3D printers to go take from home and says they could carry on prototyping and and you know, design new products so um that was really interesting to see but what we're actually seeing now is that thankfully the industry is starting to turn well actually it's been turning over the last year really because we have seen that increase in industrial shipments over the last year and um, but now it's actually a complete reversal so industrial is, is now leading the way and actually those more consumer uh, centric systems are kind of down and also just decelerating at the same time and um, so just a few um kind of numbers for you now so Context has noted that shipments of industrial systems were up 53% greater than the same period two years ago, and design systems, again, those ones at 20,000 onwards, are 36% greater. So all those shipments of consumer-centric personal and hobby printers, so that includes some of those kits that you have to build yourself, um, were up from pre-pandemic levels. Um, they were down 25% and 47% on Q1 2021. And professional systems, which form the immediate segment of this category, are looking for a catalyst and the performance of a Q122 was relatively flat, up just 2% year-on-year and 7% on Q1 2022. So um, not a lot of growth in those categories there, which what a, a flip really you know we've we've seen these machines do really well and you know i even questioned myself at the time you know had um had the use of desktop systems had it almost benefited from the results of the pandemic which i think it did at the time but obviously not really um seeing that now and we have seen that creep up um into those higher categories of machines as i mentioned before the farm lab system something like that when that was launched um last year we saw a bit of a change in that market because now people were excited by a new machine and been able to dig into a new market with that so that category seems to do a lot better which I guess we've we've had confirmed now from Max Lebowski when he talked about the uh, the shipments from that machine so just talking about industrial printers so shipments of almost all types of printers in this market segment grew in Q1 2022 with the greatest growth seen in metal binder jet printing where printer shipments were up 113% over Q1 2021 which is not surprising because it's a huge market now, but um, as we said, we have to kind of think about that in a very realistic way and realise that um, that still only accounts for three um, percent of industrial machine shipments. So other types of technology still dominating that market. But in terms of how quickly that has grown in those couple of years because of the interest put in that industry, super super interesting. Of course, that has been um, held up by companies like Desktop Metal along with X One. Of course, uh, were acquired by Desktop Metal, who are leading the market share for metal binder jetting. Um, and the, the report has also mentioned incoming technologies from the likes of HP and GE who are going to be launching their systems uh, very soon, although we keep hearing very, very soon and we don't hear anything about it. So apparently they're still on track to launch in 2022. So I think you and I are hoping to see something about that. Maybe INTS or Farm next? I would say if... I don't know, because immediately I saw that figure on Barnachat and I was like, well, that's a good sign for those guys. 
And then I thought, or oh, did I need to hurry up because people are buying, <laughs> buying their banjo jet machines and G and HP are still... I think I think HP is probably coming sooner than GE mm. from what I've what I gathered in Amo Gandor Rapid um, and the conversations I had there. So I'd expect HP to announce theirs before GE, but um, but yeah, promising. But also, get me wrong. <laughs> we will see. Um, just staying on the industrial segment, one of the things I find interesting about this report is um, just a look at the market in China. So Union Tech uh, was the volume leader for shipments in this category, but that did trail off uh, by, six, by 6% from a year ago. That's interesting because in at the start of the pandemic when those industrial shipments had really, really dipped, one of the few places where industrial was actually doing well was China at the time. We've seen like huge installs happening over there with um, different companies you know investing in many many uh, machines for, for their facilities and those machine companies that are based in China are actually doing really well and um, during that period but you know now we are seeing uh, that dip and context does and um, put that down to the zero COVID policy which is resulting in lockdowns in major cities and they do believe that this growth is likely to be further um, impacted in Q2 2022 and um, due to various lockdowns However, other areas that have done really well during that time are North America, which saw a year-on-year shipment growth of 16%, and Western Europe, where shipments rose by 8%. And they list some of the standout brands from that category, which were Prodways, uh, BMF, 3D Systems, Farsoon. Again, no surprise there, Farsoon have done Mm -hmm. incredibly well in the last few years. They're one of those companies where people don't just install one machine, they install several of their (laughs) machines. Um, And HP from their Polymer category. Um, E plus 3D too, and Velo 3D have done really well trump and uh, far soon for their metals brand too um so yeah some really key companies there and none of them are a huge surprise to be honest we, we know these companies do very well and i'm going to try and very quickly run through these categories now so design printers the next category down top 10 companies in this segment all shipped more systems in q1 2022 than in q1 2021 so that was companies like um stratasys 3d systems mark ford nexus 3d and prodways by technology, um, material jetting was particularly strong in the period, led by 3D Systems with the multi-jet printing technologies up 53% year on year, um, and Stratasys with its polyjet technology up 44%. Um, so yeah, again, no surprise there, the two um, you know biggest um, people in the industry. Um, so included all technologies, existing product lines responsible for the most shipment growth in these classes, um, but it also meant that newly introduced models and technologies from other vendors like um, Origin, which Stratasys acquired uh, last year. Uh, was it maybe two years ago now? Cut these years End blending of into one. 2020, start of 21, <laughs> okay. I think. So um, that has also started to see some growth um, and 3D systems, material extrusion printers from the acquisition of Cumovis as well also contributed to this. And that seems to have happened quite quickly because Cumovis really wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw um, some of this finally in person at Rapid Plus TCT uh, back in May and um, 3D Systems obviously spoke very highly of that technology so it's, it's interesting to see that doing well already. And then down into the professional category, which is those brands like Ultimaker, MakerBot that have these more accessible desktop systems but are aimed at more professional markets. As we know, one of the biggest news stories from this year, probably the biggest news story from this year, <laughs> was um, Ultimaker and MakerBot announcing a, mer- a merger, which means that MakerBot will be spinning out from parent company Stratasys. Um, 
into the professional personal assistance markets. Um, strengthen the US market and education sector will complement that of Ultimaker, according to Context, which long ago shifted its focus to professional segments, which I guess MakerBot did as well with its method printer that they shifted mm-hmm. to a much more professional uh, mindset. They did have a name for that kind of category of printers. I, f- I think it's performance 3D printing is what uh, MakerBot called it, but uh, they'll really be tackling both of those segments now with, with uh, both of those areas of expertise. Um, Concept says, given the limited recent growth in shipments of professional machines, the industry is eager to see the direction the new company will take. Um, it's still very open as to what that new company is going to look like, what it might be called. But a lot of it does seem to be um, put down to these two companies because they are, you know, t- two of the biggest names in this industry. Mm-hmm. Then you've also got um, companies like Formlabs, which is still within this class with the um, with their SLA technology. Um, so they're also doing very well, as we've just seen from a, a previous news story. Um, but while professional units from Ultimate and Formos accounted for 55% of those shipped in Q1 2022, there were other vendors in the top five, including Ray3D and SprintRay, which saw actually better growth. Uh, the significance of these markets and the slight share shift in the category can be demonstrated by excluding the top two brands in the analysis. Without them, total unit shipments would have been 16% year on year. Uh, some really interesting numbers there. Um, you can read the full story um, on tctmagazine.com if you want to have a look at some of these stats a bit more closely. And then finally, just to compare with that, uh, the segment that has um, decreased in terms of shipments over over this last um, this last quarter. So personal and uh, personal and kit and hobby printers. So shipments of the lowest end printers were significantly down last year, uh, down on last year. Sorry, um, but a few vendors did have some success in the education sector, um, which I guess does does make more sense as people have gone back to universities and schools that sort of thing. It makes sense that this would be and do better than it has done over the last few years. Um, while do-it-yourself kits are more for hobbyists, um, those low-cost fully assembled personal printer sales um, across more markets, including education, personal shipments saw some success as governments across the world look to support the teaching of science, uh, basically STEM careers and um, within schools. Um, and they, they also mentioned some of the impact of different subsidies in countries that support in educational programs within STEM, really helping to push um, companies like um I think the success of companies like Zortrex, that sort of thing, with a strong presence in the education sector. So again, like Zortrex is a big company, but one that we don't hear about as much as someone like a MakerBot, for example, in the education market. Um, and MakerBot have also recently highlighted some government support as well, which has put more of their printers um, into into schools across the region. And that was announced after the Ultimaker deal. So it makes me think that they are still going to be very much focused on the education mm-hmm. sector from their side. Um, but it does say that the the segment is um, hopeful that, that um, for this low end of the market that there will be a bit of a resurgence on the recently recently subdued crowdsourcing sector. So they use as an example here, um, in Q1 2022, um, a company called Anchor raised a record 8.9 million on Kickstarter against a pre-order of over 12,000 printers. This is interesting because I think you know a few years ago we, we saw. I don't think I'm exaggerating to say every week a new Kickstarter for a 3D mm-hmm. printer. So uh, probably only like five years ago or something that it was that it was like that. And a lot of these were for these like ridiculously cheap printers and many of them never saw the light of day. We have plenty of horror stories in the <laughs> archives. There's also been plenty of success stories as well, i.e. phone laughs. Um, but yeah, to see that people are looking at, at um, launching on crowdfunding sites again and something like 8.9 million dollars on a kickstarter now it shows that that is sort of starting to to come back so that's quite an interesting one i'm very well there's a lot of stats sam to to deal with but any kind of takeaways from that um i think it sounds mostly promising Mm -hmm. and encouraging i think chris in in the release um 
pointed to supply chain um, as you know, and I that I I don't know how much kind of intel has gone into that um, the insight that Chris has given there, but it it's a good sign I think that if that is the case, that these um, machine sales are picking up and machine shipments are picking up because obviously throughout the last few years we've all been discussing um, AM's capabilities when it comes to supply chain. So if that is a direct response, mm-hmm. um, that would be great. Obviously, as you mentioned, um, industries like aerospace are also kind of coming back um, will will lead to an uptick in um, the more industrial class as well. Um, and I guess even dentistry, I, I wonder, obviously it's always been an industry that... Um, you know, has used the technology for a while now, but I imagine a lot of those um, were closed down during COVID because it wasn't like, I don't know, I don't, it might depend on different geographies, but certainly in the UK, I don't think it was mm. incredibly easy to just go <laughs> go to the dentist no. during, <laughs> during the lockdowns because it wouldn't have been seen as an emergency. Um, you would have just had to deal with your toothache, which mm-hmm. I imagine was not fun. <laughs> um, um, and then the the kind of the hobbyist market was interesting as well because I, w- I wonder whether there was just a massive spike in lockdown of people picking up a new hobby. Um, I'm sure we can all relate to it. <laughs> and not following it for... 500 hours on Animal Crossing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and after a year, that, that dropped significantly and maybe that's a reason for that because obviously there's still a strong kind of community of makers and hobbyists that use 3D printing technology, but I imagine an awful lot of people... Um, will have tried their hand at it um, and perhaps realised it wasn't for them. This may be slightly off topic, but I think it is relevant to this. I find this interesting, right, because me and you are in a bubble where everyone is talking about 3D printing every single day. Mm. And we ask people a lot about supply chain because a lot of people have been talking about additive manufacturing within supply chain and the benefits that it can bring. And, you know, it's, it's always on a panel session. Any kind of event you go to now, it's, it's one of the big topics. We've made it a big topic in the magazine over the last mm-hmm. couple of years as well. But we've we've got a, a new member of staff, for example, who joined us very recently, very interested in the technology. But when I've spoken about additive manufacturing 3d printing been used during the pandemic for like these community efforts and stuff and mm. um, he said he'd not really seen much about it and i've actually noticed that when i've spoken to people that you know want to know what, what i do and you know you say oh we go oh you might have seen on the bbc last year and they go oh no and it's not that they're not interested but i think like is that because we're so in the bubble like do people outside of this see that or not i think if people had any sense during the pandemic they were not watching the news that's very true because it was horrific um <laughs> Maybe that was the problem, that by the time 3D printing was making it on the news, everyone had had enough of the news um, and had instead gone and found a nice, uplifting box set to watch, <laughs> or a new hobby to not continue with after about three months. Um, but no, I do think that, and I do think um, there, are, there are certain things that... I remember speaking to someone at um, Rapid Plus DCT, and they, they grabbed... I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, so... Apologies for retelling a story, but they grabbed a nasopharyngeal swab um, and they suggested that that isn't being made now mm-hmm. with 3D printing. The, the The supply chain for that product is back. And um, so I don't know whether... It must have been quite easy to miss the boat on it because I guess 
once the once 3D printed and made it onto a mainstream news cycle, it wasn't going to stay there for all that long. Um, on you know on BBC News, they they'll find another mm. another once they've highlighted that 3D printing has made this face shield component or a valve for a ventilator, then that's the story done. I don't know that that developed further for a mainstream. It does for us, obviously. Yeah. But I don't know whether that would be why. And I suppose that that's really, that's the thing we want because, you know, we we don't want a story that's just, this isn't, we have to cover the story with the 3D printing angle because that's what we are. But we don't want the story just to be about 3D printing. We want it to be about why it was valuable, why it was used. And I, I, I guess maybe the positive is in the fact that safe companies have turned on to 3D printing as a more permanent way to manufacture than that. But the fact that they're not talking about it is probably a better thing because it means it's just kind of been, yeah. it's just understood and accepted or maybe they just don't want to talk about it because it's a competitive edge <laughs> <laughs> maybe before we don't want to compete with BBC News um, but also like the, so the point of BBC News covering that story is that it's a human interest story mm-hmm. because it's a community yeah. thing of um, they're not when was the last time you watched the news and you know they, they were discussing this part of being manufactured this way because it's better They unless it's an awfully slow news day which yeah. unfortunately in the UK we do not get anymore there's always something going on um then they're not gonna cover that i wouldn't have thought which is why we exist thank you (laughs) (laughs) should we just end there then that's perfect very nice to do it Um, so that's about it for us today thank you very much for listening if you like us and want to hear more um, don't forget to subscribe if you have a podcast and if you want more additive insight because of course you do <laughs> you should subscribe at tcmagazine.com to get our weekly newsletter which is your weekly roundup of the biggest 3D printing news stories and also you can get your free print subscription to TCT Magazine which will be coming out very very soon Sam and I will be frantically proofreading that magazine probably as this podcast yeah. <laughs> goes out um <laughs> And just a few things to mention before we leave. We do have um, a call for papers open at the moment for the TCT conference at Form Next. And we've just extended the deadline for a very short period. Um, so if you didn't quite make the deadline last week to submit your presentations for that, uh, please do that now, uh, but be quick. So you go to tctmagazine.com, you can find all the information there. Or go to tctconferenceformnext.com to find all the details you need there for submitting your abstract. Um, or just get in touch with us you can find us on all the usual places and uh, just contact us via the TCT Magazine website if you need any uh, questions answered about the conference but we are after great end user applications, this is no sales pitches, uh, no vendors on the TCT main stage, it's all about uh, useful applications for the technology which I guess ties into what we've just been talking about, I think you've probably got about a week or so to do that now so um, like I said be very very quick But thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it and we'll see you again next time. Bye.